Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Professor Jeffrey Sachs, who is the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, and also the president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Sachs was a leading figure in creating both the Millennium and the Sustainable Development Goals, so we were really excited to have the chance to speak to him about his work on sustainability and his experiences in international institutions. In particular, Sachs talks about three things in our interview. One is the need to reform the international financial system and provide developing countries with access to cheap credit, especially during global emergencies. Two is where he sees the role of mitigating global catastrophic risk in the area of sustainable development, particularly after the dramatic effect COVID-19 had in disrupting anti-poverty measures. And three is the importance of expert advice and political leadership more broadly. We should also mention that Sachs has started his own podcast called Book Club with Jeffrey Sachs, which is well worth checking out too. And we'll include a link to this in the write-up and our show notes. But without any further ado, here's the episode. I'll just delve in kind of to kick things off with, and that is that in 2005, right, you wrote this very famous book called The End of Poverty, in which you stated that our generation can choose to end extreme poverty by the year 2025. Uh, Now that doesn't seem so far away. Uh, We're in the year 2021. And I'm just really curious to hear when you look back at the last 15 years and how the international community has performed, how does that compare with your expectations back in 2005? And what would you have wished that we could have done better? I don't know about my expectations uh, in 2005, but I can tell you about my hopes for 2005, uh, and that is that we would have had uh, a true community uh, globally, and we would have worked together on this challenge of ending poverty, and we would be much farther along than we are. China chose to end extreme poverty. Uh, It actually announced uh, around then that by 2020, it would end extreme poverty. And lo and behold, in 2020, it achieved that. And it really did achieve that, I can tell you, uh, by the way, because uh, pre-COVID, I uh, was traveling uh, often to China, and I went to visit some of the poorest counties of China, uh, for example, the Ningxia Autonomous Region. And I saw with my own eyes over the years, uh, extreme poverty uh, almost melt away Uh, as uh, development took place, as new social services uh, and infrastructure were built. So China reached zero. Other parts of the world also experienced declines of poverty that were notable. That's true in sub-Saharan Africa. It is, of course, true uh, in most of Asia. But the pace of decline was insufficient. My disappointment, of course, is that in the international system. It calls itself an international community, but there's very little community, uh, in fact. Uh, In the international system, the level of effort by the rich countries and the policies uh, that they put in place to address extreme poverty was pretty pathetic. Of course, we never reached the 0.7 minimum target set by uh, the UN already 50 years ago. Uh, The United States basically dissed the target and ignored it and uh, played dumb, I'd say very dumb, uh, but uh, was uninterested in in this. 
most of the donor countries uh, similarly uh, did very little during this period, and other institutions that could have played a much larger role, and that perhaps we'll discuss, like the multilateral development banks, were also not especially proactive. Then we had so many weirdnesses and disappointments. Uh, the 2008 financial crisis, of course, was a, was a crisis, uh, and uh, it diverted attention uh, away from the challenges of global development. Every country focused on their own stabilization and recovery. Very strange for me is that President Obama, who I strongly supported for election in 2008 and, and for re-election in 2012, showed really no interest in the international development or poverty reduction issues that still is a bit mind-boggling to me. Then in the U.S., we elected Trump, and uh, he's a, a psychopath and uh, did uh, profound damage to the world, uh, including the United States. But uh, if he had been told he could have raised poverty, I think he would have gone after that. You know, this was a man that has absolutely no interest in helping anybody but himself. And that was uh, the government of the United States for four years, even with that ghastly slogan, America first, uh, which meant America's selfishness uh, set up as some kind of uh, perverse uh, norm of behavior. Uh, why should we help anyone else? Uh, we're not going to throw our money away. And that kind of nastiness was championed uh, in the U.S. So here we are, COVID now, uh, even a deepening of uh, crisis and neglect of uh, people in need. And yet, <laughs> and yet, with all of that, the wealth in the world has continued to soar. The uh, billionaires had the best imaginable period since the start of COVID. Uh, they went from about $8 trillion of net worth to more than $13 trillion of net worth in the middle of a pandemic, for heaven's sake. And they don't pay taxes. They don't want to pay taxes. They pay for politicians to ensure that they don't pay taxes. So I stand with my observation in 2005, we can end extreme poverty. We're just not trying very hard. And it is a very powerful message, right? That it really is a choice that if we wanted to, there is definitely enough wealth in this world to eliminate extreme poverty. And one thing I definitely want to pick up on there is you mentioned the 0.7% the aid. Uh, we are in the UK here. And just two weeks ago, the government was talking about cutting that, allegedly because of COVID constraints. But really, when you think about it, 0.7% is such a low limit already for what we could theoretically contribute that really cutting that itself is, yeah, is, is a really sad thing to do, especially because the UK has historically been one of the few countries to have lived up to, to even this, this small commitment. But it's also weird for the, the UK. Now it's, it cut itself off from Europe with Brexit, but it said, okay, we're going to be a big player uh, in the world. So uh, dreams of the former British uh, imperial days, I suppose. But then, oh no, we're not even going to spend 0.7 uh, which all parties had promised to 
uh, a few years ago. We're not even going to do that. Shame. It's, it's so amazing how little Britain can get through its own devices if it, if it wants to. And I remember uh, when 0.7, of course, was adopted just a few years ago, that wasn't a Tory versus Labour issue. That was all parties. I wrote a, uh, an op-ed together with David Cameron. He kindly invited me, and I was uh, delighted to join him in this uh, idea of uh, Britain reaching the 0.7 target. Of course, every rich country should do this. To, just to reiterate, because maybe 0.7 is such a strange number uh, intuitively, but it's less than 1%. You know, you can't even give 1% of income of a rich country for the world. Come on. So it sounds like, and I'm more or less convinced by this, that you're pointing to as an explanation for this failure to meet up to your hopes from 2005 about ending extreme poverty across the world. You're pointing to really a failure of will and a kind of choice to back down from what is a fairly minimal responsibility on the part of rich countries. That sounds right, but I guess there's another point here, which is that there is still some disagreement about how, in fact, to end extreme poverty, given the will. As you know, in the kind of early, mid-2000s, you had this debate with another economist, William Easterly, about the effectiveness of overseas aid. And that debate was fairly influential, right, in shaping development economics today. We had a listener question, um, a listener, Pablo. He asks, so Easterly has admitted, and he missed this in 2017, that you were closer to the truth in... Um, your disagreement over the effectiveness of malaria bed nets? I, I wouldn't say closer to the truth. I think I got it right. <laughs> More or less on the truth. Um, but the follow-up is, is there a disagreement where you think Easterly was the one closer to the truth? L let, let me explain uh, the situation this way. And, and Bill and I are friends, and uh, I, I want to start by saying that. But there was a debate in the early 2000s. Bed nets was part of it. The AIDS epidemic was another part of it. Public health in general was a, a part of it. I said in 2000, 2001, uh, when I led the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health for the World Health Organization, that if we put more money into health, especially into priorities like AIDS, TB, and malaria, we could save vast numbers of lives. And that uh, triggered... Uh, many reactions, including one that you uh, said. But there were two questions. One, could you raise the incremental funding? And second, would it actually work? And many, many specific claims were made. We had a head of USAID who literally said that you could not give antiretroviral medicines for Africa because Africans did not have watches and could not tell time and would not know when to take their medicine. And not only is that statement so shocking as to seem impossible that an American official would have made, at least for me it's, it seems impossible, but he made it, he kept his job. Not only did he make it, he actually kept his job. He didn't have to resign five minutes later with such a stupidity. But the point is that many claims were made. 
bed nets will be stolen, bed nets will be lost, bed nets uh, will be smuggled, bed nets uh, will turn into fishing nets, bed nets will be turned into wedding veils, antiretroviral medicines will be black marketed. The list was long. Well, somehow in those days, and there are always quirks in this because George W. Bush Jr., who was not my favorite president, stepped up and said, we're going to do this. And it happened, actually. And a global fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria was established. And uh, PEPFAR for uh, AIDS meds was established. And the president's malaria initiative was established. All of that was from 2001 to 2005. There was a period of about uh, six years where just about every time I opened my mouth, the word bed net came out uh, because I was just on a, a campaign, give away these bed nets. And the donor agencies were furious with me. Uh, and the malariologists, stop saying this, Sachs. You know, we have a social marketing. We have this, we have... I said, just give the nets away for heaven's sake. Finally, that battle was resolved in the direction I was advocating in 2007 when WHO changed its policy. And then in 2008, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon called for a mass distribution of bed nets. Now, the reason I mention all of this is when you've gone through a battle like that, then one should look at what happens afterwards. And what happened was that millions of lives were saved by antiretroviral medicines and by the bed nets. And lo and behold, economists, because it's a strange tribe, actually did studies. Why weren't all those bed nets stolen? You know, how did that work? It wasn't supposed to go that way. But what happened to me was the weirdest thing after that, which is that, okay, the experiment was done. It worked. And then I said, look, it works. Can you now raise the funding? Because we see that it works. Do you know that in 2009, the Obama administration put a ceiling on the AIDS funding, near, froze the funds at the Global Fund in the midst of the success? And even if you argued, well, it's working, that also didn't matter. I know it because at OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, they said, we're not going to go higher after this. And then Actually, the Global Fund had to miss one of its financing rounds. Then they changed their financing strategy to be constrained. Now, we're talking about a few billion dollars, which is rounding error in a U.S. economy of $21 trillion. In a world in which the Pentagon spends about $2 billion a day I used to say, let the Pentagon take a long weekend, then we can end malaria. And the point is, even after you prove that it works, that doesn't change the politics either. You get to a point after a while, you've been doing this for a while, you get to a point where you realize, you know what, these are arguments thrown up as obfuscation. These are not arguments meant in good faith. These are lazy arguments to disguise the fact that all we're going to give is this amount of money and we'll defend that proposition. Let me give you another example more recently. 
for the last six or seven years, not every time I've opened my mouth, but almost every time, uh, out has come, get the kids in school. It's SDG number four, that every child should have access to education from pre-K through upper secondary. If there's one finding in 100 years of development economics, it is that investing in human capital is a huge return for society. It's uh, probably the most robust single finding in economics and not a very surprising one at that, but absolutely robust. But hundreds of millions of kids are not in school. And the reason is in some part is conflict, but most of it is poor countries that can't afford places in schools for the kids. So this is a nightmare. And what would you do if you really wanted to solve this problem? You would do what UNESCO has done for years. You take out a spreadsheet and you say, so how much does it cost to educate a child for one year? You'd estimate a unit cost. You'd multiply by the number of kids. You'd look at the budget. You'd see what the budgets of poor countries can do. And you'd say, oh my God, there's a financing gap of 40 billion a year, 50 billion a year and so forth. The IMF has done those calculations in recent years very well, showing, yeah, there's a, a significant financing gap, significant if you're impoverished, but insignificant if you take the point of view of the rich world, or Mr. Bezos, or 2,755 billionaires, or the Pentagon, or any other place that the funding could easily come from. So. I bring all of this up because the G7, which I regard as an unserious institution right now, just had its summit meeting, and they spent a lot of time, and they mugged for the cameras very well, and they made all sorts of announcements and communiques. And if you go to the communique, one of the communiques is, education is so important. It's unbelievable how important education is. And we've got to get the girls in school. And so what do they say in all of this? They say at the end, and therefore, we are committing to two and three quarter billion dollars for education in uh, the Global Partnership for Education. And I'm scratching my head. Are you kidding? Where did that number pop up? Well, that's very convenient, but that is rounding error. Why don't you do your homework, G7? I can do it on a spreadsheet. You guys could do it too. And why don't you see that that number is a ridiculous commitment for G7 countries compared to the real costs of getting the kids in school? There's a deep institutionalized unseriousness about this proposition because maybe they should just say, look, Professor Sachs, shut up. Ending extreme poverty is not really our goal. We have other objectives. Okay, if you say that, we could discuss that. But they don't say that. They say SDG 1, we believe in the SDGs, we believe in all these good things. And then they don't do the basic arithmetic to put the numbers in their minds and then to ask the question, how can we get these numbers? And lo and behold, if they did that and said, hmm, that's interesting. Now, we have a $200 billion gap. That seems like a big number. And then we would say, yes, but 
2,755 billionaires, and here's the list, and we could give them the spreadsheet because it's on the Bloomberg page or on the Forbes page all the time. Just uh, if they would each pay 2% of their wealth annually, well, on $13 trillion, that's $260 billion a year from 2,755 people. Are you kidding? So why don't we ask them? Thank you very much. And then we could achieve the sustainable development goals. Yeah, yeah, it's super fascinating. And I can especially imagine that having been in this field for so long, this gap between dialogue and action must be incredibly frustrating. Well, it's, it's just odd also, because at some point you think there must be a real discussion going on someplace. <laughs> what, what you see is so flaky that it's because the, the assignments we give in a problem set are more sophisticated than what comes out of our G7 governments or our G20 processes, because in a problem set, you would ask, okay, suppose that you need to do this, this, and this. Uh, you would invert a matrix, and you'd find out uh, how much it costs to actually accomplish something, uh, and you'd solve the problem. But we don't have that kind of problem solving in government. And I have looked, <laughs> I've, I've looked uh, behind the curtains uh, everywhere for decades. It just doesn't go on. Maybe it goes on in the Pentagon in, in a little bit more serious way because uh, money is not their budget constraint exactly. Uh, but it, it does not go on in civilian life. It, it truly, in the United States, it doesn't go on even for Americans, much less for uh, poor people abroad. But the, the truth is, the poor people abroad are so poor and the needs to get out of extreme poverty are so modest, it might shock some of these uh, policymakers and politicians to realize how readily we could address these problems. And you mentioned there as well this kind of, I guess, explosion in economic literature just about how effective some of these interventions can be. Um, I know from kind of the EA perspective as well, there have been organizations like GiveWell that have really emphasized the effectiveness of these micro interventions. But zooming out a bit and thinking about this on the macro scale, you've also been a big proponent of this kind of big push approach. This idea that once you can get countries uh, beyond a certain level of poverty or this this kind of threshold, then really you've helped them get onto this like increasing ladder of, of kind of development. Um, one question that I have about this is when we look at the world today, COVID has been a real big shock uh, for the whole world. And there are especially concerns about how this might affect the developing world. Um, do you think at all when we think about these thresholds or this kind of big pushes that this can work the other way as well? And how worried are you about the long-term effects that COVID can have on the developing world? I think the stunning aspect of COVID in terms of economics is that the rich countries uh, have spent a fortune in fighting COVID and fighting its macroeconomic effects and in beginning the recovery process, $15 trillion is uh, one rough estimate. Uh, the IMF has collected these numbers. The United States alone, between March 2020 and March 2021, appropriated $6 trillion. But the poor countries, hardly anything. And this is not because the poor countries didn't need it, but because they can't finance 
the response the same way the rich countries can. I was recently in a discussion with the Denmark and Kenyan officials about the post-COVID situation. So I happened to look up the 10-year borrowing rate of Denmark and the 10-year borrowing rate of Kenya. And uh, on the day that I looked it up uh, for uh, comparable bonds, the borrowing rate in Denmark was 0.1% interest for 10 years. The borrowing rate for Kenya was 9.8% interest. So it's as if it's a different world. One has access to almost free credit, uh, interest rates near zero in real terms, basically zero or even negative. Uh, in Kenya, punishingly high interest rates that could lead to a death spiral in the budget if large amounts were borrowed at essentially 10% coupon rates. And so our world became a lot more unequal with COVID. And what strikes me is just how poorly global finance works. It's been, a, uh, it, it's been an observation for a long time that uh, theoretically, finance should be flowing from the capital rich to the capital scarce countries. That's the basic theory uh, of uh, what financial intermediation would do. Put aside risk issues for just one moment, we have countries that have a 50th of the capital per person of uh, the rich countries. And there's every reason to believe, actually, that their uh, social return on that capital is very high indeed. Uh, it's investing in basic education, investing in healthcare. The societal returns are huge. But we don't have a financial system which finances the accumulation of that capital, uh, even in extremely capital-scarce settings. And that's been a matter of theoretical speculation for a long time. One answer theoretically could be, well, they're increasing returns, so poor countries uh, don't uh, generate the high returns. Uh, even though they're capital scarce, the rich countries actually have the higher returns. I don't believe that's the case. Uh, another argument, of course, that said is, well, yes, that's fine, but you could not actually manage that flow and get those returns because it would be stolen, corrupt, mismanaged, and so forth. So it's only uh, an illusion that there's a high return. That's the standard argument, I would say. But I think another argument is that the financial system doesn't function properly, in part, uh, by the way, because of the monetary dimension of this. The poor countries borrow in uh, dollars. They're subject to balance of payments crises. They're subject to lack of liquidity, so-called sudden stops, self-fulfilling crises, what we call in, uh, in uh, the technical literature, diamond divvig, self-fulfilling panics. And the rich countries have what was famously called the exorbitant privilege of borrowing in your own currency and being able to, therefore, absolutely avoid a balance of payments crisis because you have the printing presses uh, to pay. So you can never run out of dollars if you're the U.S. government. You can have inflation, but you can't run out of dollars. You can't have a self-fulfilling panic the same way. So all of that is to say that 
there are some mysteries. Why is it that countries that on the face have lower debt, lower debt service to tax uh, and so forth, pay exorbitant premia on borrowing, whereas the United States, which is, a, would say, a pretty uh, soft fiscal system right now where both parties like running deficits, where the debt is already uh, 100% of GDP, where we have uh, absolute aversion to taxation, pays almost zero interest rates on long-term debt. I think it's the exorbitant privilege uh, of uh, having the U.S. dollar uh, as your central bank's currency and, and having the printing presses for it. All of that is, a, is just a, a little bit of a digression, but it is to say that countries that need to get the kids in school, to get the access to health care for people, safe water, sanitation, electrification, digital access, the basic infrastructure that could tremendously boost their economies can't get the capital except at punishingly high interest rates that lead in an almost self-fulfilling way to crises if they load up on too much debt. And therefore, <laughs> bottom line of all of that is I think we need serious international financial reform, a kind of new Bretton Woods settlement uh, that ensures liquidity and much more access to capital to uh, developing countries than is in fact the case. And uh, a very practical, simple part of that story is more SDR allocations for liquidity and more paid in capital into the multilateral development banks so that the banks like the African Development Bank can lend at low interest, long-term, far more funds to uh, capital-scarce African countries so that they can develop. So just thinking through perhaps the effects of COVID um, specifically, we've touched upon in this conversation here, on the one hand, beginning this kind of humanitarian disaster, and then on the other hand as well, these inequalities in the global finance system. Where do you see the effect of COVID, if any, happening here in the, in the long term? Do you see a risk there in it maybe causing these uh, financial crises that you mentioned? Or is there even a way within it causes countries or individuals or households to fall back into these poverty traps? Do you think that this will still be an issue uh, in 10 years, that we still feel these effects in emerging economies? The, the question uh, sometimes is phrased as, what will the scarring be from COVID? Will it lead to a, a long tail of financial distress and debt distress? One of the things that's happened in just the last few months is that Fitch has downgraded systematically one African country after another in the context of COVID. So the debt crises, uh, although perhaps silent or quiet for the moment, are definitely rising. Uh, a number of African countries have large debt payments due partly to official creditors, partly to multilateral creditors, uh, Paris Club creditors, but also to the private sector. In 2023, 2024, the overhang of debt has definitely worsened. The potential scarring from COVID is therefore extremely serious. The inability of poor countries to even respond to controlling COVID has been exposed. They don't have the ability to uh, produce vaccines on their own. And all of the promises that they would get 
vaccines that were pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, that's still going to happen, but they've been in the back of the queue for many months now without any clarity at all or any plan of action globally to ensure comprehensive immunization coverage worldwide. On the one hand, it's understandable that there is a time delay because immunizing the whole world with vaccines that didn't even exist a year ago is not a simple proposition. The fact that there still is no plan to do so, however, is rather shocking. And that is what is really bothering me right now. So I think the answer to your question is COVID has widened wealth and income inequalities uh, in countless ways. The rich countries are recovering faster and stronger than the poor countries. Many poor countries, by the way, are in second or third waves right now. Uh, Africa might be facing uh, a huge rise of cases, especially with the Delta variant and with the, the still complete lack of uh, immunization uh, in most of the continent. And the finances for recovery Nobody has uh, provided solutions. The only glimmer right now that is a positive development is that there will be an SDR allocation approved. This is a good thing and an important thing. Uh, $650 billion uh, in July. Uh, we need a lot more than that actually on the SDR side because that's mainly for liquidity to avoid balance of payments crises, but there hasn't been yet a solution for the long-term financing put on the table by anybody. And by the way, uh, you know, just one piece of this puzzle is honest global taxation so that money doesn't disappear down the tax havens. And here too, uh, it's phenomenal to watch in the United States, uh, the Biden administration has proposed tax reform, and this is very, very good and uh, very uh, wise and just that they have done so. The G7, to their credit, negotiated uh, and agreed that there should be a minimum corporate tax of at least 15%. I think it should be much higher, but at least 15%. But the Republicans in the United States said, this is crazy, this is un-American. Uh, and if plutocracy is your game, then it is un-American. Uh, so that, that's the interesting point. Let's talk about the sustainable development goals then in the context of COVID. Um, one upshot you've just mentioned there is that there is this fairly urgent need for reforming global finance. But there's some other lesson to be learned here maybe, right? Which is that we have the, the SDGs. We've made some progress on them, maybe not as much as you might have hoped. But that progress has been incremental and fairly gradual and pointing in the right direction. And then this big risk came along and wiped a really depressing amount of that progress off the table very quickly. But here's the thing. People were calling the alarm in advance. We had ways of knowing about this risk before it became too late to do much about it. And yet the importance of assessing, scanning the horizon and being proactive about these risks, it isn't mentioned a great deal in the SDGs themselves, but it's just had this enormous effect. So if there's a question here, it's, it's something like, when the SDGs are up for 
being reassessed in 2030. Is there space here for that next iteration of the, the goals to improve on making development progress on the other goals, resilient to these kind of large scale risks which we can anticipate, but they kind of, when they come, they come fairly suddenly? Well, I, I think that the, the broad point of uh, foresight, resiliency, preparedness uh, is, uh, should be with us. We don't have to wait to 2030 for that. That should uh, always be very much in mind. And I would say absolutely that climate scientists, for example, have been screaming for at least 30 years, almost in unison, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. It's gonna be dramatic. We could pass tipping points, uh, thresholds, and so forth. Of course, the risks of pandemic diseases have been recognized. Even coronavirus risks uh, were uh, understood. Uh, we didn't prepare for them uh, properly. Uh, we didn't uh, react properly. But it isn't as if the warnings weren't out there. And the more one delves into it, at a technical level, there was a lot of recognition uh, that a spillover event of a SARS-like virus uh, could well take place. So our governments are not very good at thinking ahead, but I would say a major uh, part of this is uh, the United States uh, has just had failed politics for many, many years, and it's a key part of the international system. Trump was a, a particular disaster for the world, and Trumpism is hardly gone right now. We, we depend on having rational, decent people in power. Uh, and it's always been a question. It, it was raised by Juvenal 2,000 years ago in Rome. Uh, if if uh, the government is the custodians, who, who guards the custodians? Uh, in other words, how do we prevent the government itself from being the abusive danger? Uh, and Trump was an abusive danger that contributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States. I'm no great fan of Boris Johnson. Uh, I don't think that that was a very serious approach or uh, governance uh, during this process. I'm less a fan of Bolsonaro, of uh, AMLO in Mexico, of... Uh, people strutting on a stage that often don't know what they're talking about. And our lives are in their hands. I'm not too, too keen on that. I don't quite see an alternative to having uh, that. But I'd say that it, it's not the SDGs uh, that is the, the major challenge. It's rationality and decency of governance that is absolutely uh, vital for our survival. And we don't have this uh, in any sure way, surely not in the United States. Uh, and uh, we crossed the line absolutely with Trump. Uh, we're still hovering on the line of great danger to ourselves and to the world in the United States. Uh, I would observe, by the way, that uh, the women leaders in the world have vastly outperformed the men uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, and I hope that we would all give some reflection to that. I was just in uh, Barbados uh, talking about CARICOM's problems and the Caribbean's crisis, which is very deep because they're a tourist-based economy. 
but they're led so wonderfully uh, in Barbados by uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley, fantastic leader. Or think about Jacinda Ardern uh, in New Zealand, who did a magnificent job in this, or the prime ministers of Finland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, or uh, Angela Merkel with very sound and uh, serious uh, approach to uh, governance. So I think my main response to your very good and pertinent question is we need serious governance. Serious governance means, first of all, organization of government itself so that it is professional, rational, problem-solving oriented, evidence-based. But we also have to take care that we don't let the psychopaths in power, uh, that we don't let the populists uh, in power, because the capacity to do damage is profound. And uh, we've gotten rid of Trump, thanks God, by an election. Bolsonaro in Brazil has presided over so many deaths in Brazil, it's a horror. And that is because of unserious rule. I think really in this whole conversation, we've talked about so many different uh, institutions that need change, right? From national leaders to these international institutions. But one thing that also matters aside from institutions are, I guess, these kinds of ideas or the narratives that influence a lot of action. And just to return to this, I guess, like broader idea of sustainability, you mentioned here this importance of climate change and environmentalism. And really, if you kind of look back at the history of development economics, I would say that that is really something that has taken off in the last 10 or even 20 years, right? That development isn't just growing as quickly as you can, but it's growing in a way that kind of respects the environment. But I think there's like an interesting parallel here to COVID, right? That there might be this also new recognition of realizing how important these catastrophic events are and that growing is definitely important and boosting GDP is important, but it's only part of this bigger picture. And that we need to grow in a way that is aware and respectful of these catastrophic risks and also takes time to prepare it. So when we think of antibiotic resistance or bio risks, uh, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are kind of there and how you would like the definition of sustainability in the international community or in this larger narrative to, to change. I should just really jump in as well and just add to what you said there, which is that maybe one bad response would be to assume the lesson from COVID is that we should be more responsive to coronaviruses or respiratory pandemics or something. Presumably the, the appropriate response is, well, we should take far more seriously this much broader class of potentially catastrophic risks, many of which would be unprecedented if they came about but we can know just about enough to prepare for and to assess how bad they would be. I, I think it's a really uh, wise and important uh, group of questions, but I, I wanna go back to uh, one uh, point that you raised where you said uh, all these institutions need changing, which I agree with, but you said, but it's also uh, the ideas that need changing. And I wanna point out that how could we ever even imagine, uh, except in crazy hubris, that uh, governments are going to change, multilateral institutions, are all these good things are going to happen? People could say, isn't that stupid, Sachs? You know, we're, what's, what's the point? But you gave the thread that I think is actually extremely important, which is that ideas can guide the change. And I personally regard the idea of sustainable development as 
an important idea that can help to guide global change. By that, I mean the following. Sustainable development for me means uh, that we're aiming for a kind of economic progress that leads to material well-being, social justice, and environmental sustainability. That's how I would define sustainable development. I view it as a normative concept or as a teleological concept. It's where we're trying to head, I believe. It would be for the well-being of the world, the well-being of society, the well-being of future generations. If you take the idea seriously, then it raises lots of questions. Well, how could we do that? What institutions would we need? How should we reform? What should we be investing in? Uh, how should we be training? What does the future look like in that regard? Even that exercise is unusual for most governments because most governments are not guided by a value proposition that our value is social inclusion, social justice, plus environmental sustainability in a material condition in which we can meet our economic needs. But once you start with the goals, boy, the kind of analysis you do is very different and very constructive in my view, not only constructivist, but very helpful because you say, oh, if we wanna do that, then we better do A, B, C, and D, because otherwise we're not gonna get to where we want to go. And I love the concept analytically, that the word I use now every time my mouth is open almost is pathways. I wanna know the pathways. How can we get to 2050 in a decarbonized economy, for example? Or what is the pathway to sustainable land use? I want good ideas about the kind of society we want. I would call them ethical ideas to help guide the institutional reform. Because if we don't have the ideas of where we're going, it's a complicated world and 193 governments and dozens of UN programs and projects and agencies and, uh, and, and, and 7.8 billion people, we're not gonna be pointed in any particular direction. Uh, we'll have uh, the cacophony rather than uh, problem solving. So that's my starting point. But then you're raising a major issue, which is suppose you're working on pathways. It's not so simple. There are shocks. There are unexpected occurrences. There are asteroids, new emerging diseases. Uh, there are uh, antibiotic uh, resistant strains that develop. How are you going to handle that? Uh, well, uh, that's what we have uh, Oxford University for. That's what we have think tanks and, and, uh, uh, and science uh, around the world and a global network of thinking about uh, to help us become aware of those risks and then to analyze what we can do about them. And it's notable, of course, uh, and... Uh, my late colleague uh, at Harvard, uh, Martin Weitzman, was a, a very important a proponent of this. When you look at climate change, don't just look at the, the mean or the average of what can happen. Look at the tail of the distribution, because that's where most of the action might come in, in prudential behavior. Uh, and this goes to many of the other kinds of risks uh, that uh, the three of us have uh, just mentioned uh, just now. 
So we need a risk-based assessment and prudential standards and an ethics of prudence also. Uh, prudence, by the way, was considered the greatest of the virtues by the ancient Greeks. The Greeks called it phronesis. In uh, Latin, uh, it became uh, prudentia. Uh, but it means uh, the capacity to choose the good, understanding the context uh, in, in care. Of course, they didn't have uh, all of the, the Bayesian adaptive dynamics that we have, but we now have uh, decision frameworks that can really help us to think about huge shocks at low probabilities. And we should be attentive to those, but we should also recognize another core concept, uh, and that is uh, planetary boundaries, that when you move beyond known operating conditions in nonlinear systems, a lot of things can go haywire. We are now warmer than at any time during the whole Holocene. We're warmer than at any time during the last 10,000 years, at least if you take century averages and probably decadal averages. And that means we're operating outside of normal bounds. We're going to see a lot of surprises. Where the heck did that massive forest fire come from? Where did that typhoon come from? Uh, and we're not prepared for that because our politicians uh, they want to give something, they want to give a tax cut to their constituents in the next three months. They don't want to prepare for the future. I'm just reflecting on what you're mentioning about ideas leading the institutions, not the other way around. I think largely that's right, but I'm also thinking that there's some kind of interaction where institutions can also help sustain the ideas, because ideas can emerge from the void, but they don't take foot that way. They don't become popular without the backing of institutions often. You're talking about the SDGs, and you're just talking about climate. And I think like a really excellent example is the IPCC. The UN sets up this kind of coalition of scientists across the world. The evidence is already there out in the world, but suddenly it has this kind of backing, this massive credibility, which um, people can bring home to their governments and point at and say, look, this is kind of backed by this international institution. We're talking about risks, tail risks from climate, um, other kinds of risks like from bioweapons, lab leaks, potentially risks from artificial intelligence, and thinking about a similar model to the IPCC, but for other kinds of risks. I'm curious whether you think that could work, something just for like a, for instance, an intergovernmental panel on existential risks or on specific risks like the bio risks or the safety concerns around AI. Why not kind of spread the ideas by just making them concrete in institutions now? I think the general question of uh, how we handle knowledge and what is knowledge, of course, pretty basic uh, epistemological questions uh, are really upon us now because uh, of several things. One, the knowledge that is needed is actually quite complex and abstruse. There are very, very few people that understand some of the key uh, points that we're talking about in depth. Uh, most of us are consumers of that, you know, here's my phone, if you ask me how it works, uh, I could mumble something uh, for a paragraph. If you really ask me how it works, maybe I could get two or three paragraphs out, uh, out of it. But if you really wanted to know, I think we'd have to go to solid state physicists as well as to uh, systems uh, engineers, uh, computer programmers, and uh, many other things. So we live in a world in which knowledge is uh, enormously 
unevenly spread. It is concentrated, and that creates huge problems. Uh, my teacher of microeconomics, uh, Ken Arrow, 50 years ago uh, almost, uh, was the pioneer of asymmetric information. But before him, C.P. Snow pointed out the difficulty of two cultures where you have science, in that case, it was the atomic age, and uh, you have people trained in humanities running the government. Uh, in my country, I don't know if they're trained in anything, especially uh, even the humanities, uh, much less uh, science. So we have a huge, huge, huge governance challenge. Add in so many known dimensions, including vested interests, uh, manufactured propaganda, and uh, non-manufactured, just crazy stuff that circulates because people are able to believe all sorts of uh, crazy things, and social media is able to expand on that. We have a phenomenal knowledge problem. Complex world, really complex, 7.8 billion people, every one of which needs to be fed each day, safe water, sanitation, and all the rest. Uh, now that need inoculations uh, through vaccines that didn't even exist a year ago. Okay, just to emphasize how complicated this is, and we don't govern this knowledge in, in a sound way, but the example you gave is, a, is an excellent example. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change did one very, very, very important thing, and it helped to explain that there is a consensus among the vast majority of those who are trained to understand this, and it helped to put in language in a summary for policymakers, is the, is the framework, uh, what that consensus is. And brilliantly, for example, after the Paris Agreement set the warming limit as agreed to be well below two degrees Celsius and then aiming to be below 1.5 degrees C, the IPCC came along and explained in a wonderful study that there's a huge difference in tail risk, uh, even in damage, between 1.5 degrees and 2, so we better go for 1.5. That had a huge effect on politics, because uh, quickly the UK and uh, the European Union grabbed on that and said, we better decarbonize by mid-century. And so these things can make a huge difference. The attention span is so short. When you have a Trump in power, it's like a, a stroke that wipes out the prefrontal cortex, basically. Uh, you don't have any thinking in government because uh, the, the one that's supposed to be the executive center uh, doesn't think uh, and uh, is all emotion. So it's like sending everything back to the amygdala rather than uh, having uh, any executive function in place. So we need to solve several problems rather urgently. The substantive problems, the methods of understanding them, and then keeping crazy people from power. I'm aware that we are basically out of time any minute now. So let me very quickly ask the final question, which we ask all of our guests, and feel free to answer this in one or two sentences even. But what is a significant thing that you have recently changed your mind about and why? Well, uh, I, I thought maybe America was going down the drain and then Trump left the presidency. So uh, maybe there's hope. Uh, and uh, th that is, uh, for me, uh, what I'm uh, clinging to right now. You know, I, I, I want to say with all of the things that we have been discussing, we really need to keep 
the idea that we can get beyond these uh, difficulties uh, in mind. Uh, and perhaps having said all about the complexities and all about the problems and all about the institutions that need fixing and all about the tail risks and, and all the rest, it is good to conclude on the realization that we really are a rich world. We are a world with uh, tremendous tools at our disposal. It is not beyond the human can to get kids into school. Uh, it's not beyond the human can to get uh, immunizations covering everybody in the world in the next few months. In other words, the challenges that we face are hard and complex and require sophisticated knowledge, and there will be curveballs and unexpected shocks coming. But we have tremendous, tremendous resources if we just take care. So that, that's the basic message that I would like to end on. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you so much. Oh, great to be with you. Thanks for a wonderful discussion. That was Jeffrey Sachs on sustainable development. As we only had an hour to record the interview, we were not able to ask Sachs about his reading recommendations during our recording. But afterwards, he emailed us with three books that he recommends listeners check out. These are number one, Black Reconstruction by Du Bois, which Sachs describes as the greatest book on American history that he knows. Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, which is, quote, the first and still the best books on ethics written in Western thought. And Essays in Persuasion by John Maynard Keynes, which Sachs called the finest essays by the greatest political economist of the 20th century. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Sachs. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. We'd be really grateful if you could leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It is still the best way that you can help other people learn about the show. And if you have constructive feedback, there's also a link on the website to an anonymous form. Or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.